Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chan, and with me I have Kevin Dom, Brendan Trotter, and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. Hello, everyone. My name is Kevin Dong, and I want to introduce you to our first McMaster Emergency Medicine podcast topic featuring Dr. Sangeeta Sharma and Dr. Brendan Trotter. This topic is an important one and something that many of us may not be familiar with, but we definitely should be. The topic is on domestic violence. Dr. Trotter interviewed our expert on this topic, Dr. Sharma, on how to recognize and provide care for patients who have gone through domestic violence. Now, let's... Listen in. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Brendan Trouder. I'm here with uh, Dr. Sangeeta Sharma. I graduated in 2005. She's an assistant uh, clinical professor at McMaster University, uh, Division in Emergency Medicine, works with us at St. Joe's. Um, and she also works as a medical director for Nina's Place, which is the uh, Sexual Assault and Domestic Violence Center for the Halton region here in Ontario. And she's also an appointed coroner for the province of Ontario. And so, uh, Sangeeta, what's, uh, what are we going to talk about today? Today, we're going to talk about domestic violence and love to bring in perspectives from emergency medicine, from the domestic violence unit world, and the coroner's office to illustrate the various aspects of this issue and provide sort of a broad overview. Okay, great. And um, just to start us off, how, would you, how should we be defining domestic violence? Well, that's a good question. Uh, domestic violence, which is also known as intimate partner violence, is defined as violence perpetrated against spouses or dating partners, either in current or former relationships. And this kind of violence can range from anything from emotional abuse, such as name-calling, to repeated physical abuse, uh, sexual assaults, or even homicide. Okay. And uh, in terms of how much of an issue this is in Canada, do you have any statistics that can kind of give our, give our listeners a, uh, an idea? Sure. Um, so according to Stats Canada, as with most violent crime overall, uh, young Canadians are most often the victim of intimate partner violence. Women and men in their late 20s and early 30s have the highest rates of intimate viol- uh, partner violence, with the age 15 to 24 group as a close second, and rates generally tend to decline as age increases, but in every age category, uh, the prevalence is higher in women than in men. Uh, There's also some stats from the Office of the Chief Coroner with respect to the Domestic Violence Death Review Committee's annual report, which was back in 2016. And uh, the number of deaths were calculated from the time period of 2003 to 2016 in Ontario, and there were 410 deaths in total that were related to domestic violence. Uh, 65% of these were homicides, and the rest, which is 35%, were homicide-suicides, where the perpetrator not only committed uh, a homicide, but also committed suicide as well. Okay, and uh, what a curiosity, I know there's a lot of regional considerations, but uh, in St. Joe's uh, in Hamilton, 
Do you have any idea how many cases you see in maybe a month or, or, or six months where you, you suspect domestic violence or you, you feel you need to look into it further? It's hard to say um, because a lot of times there, there are many cases of domestic violence that don't actually come to light, mainly because there's lack of disclosure and also because even when uh, patients experience it, they may not actually seek any medical advice. I don't have specific numbers of sort of overall, but in terms of what is seen in the Halton region, I would say about five to ten cases a month. Okay. I think you had a case that you wanted to run through, just kind of illustrate some of the points. Yeah, I wanted to run through a case that we had uh, earlier this year. It was a 36-year-old female that we saw that attended the emergency department with left shoulder pain. Uh, On arrival, she was noted to look quite disheveled and withdrawn. It was the middle of the summer and she was wearing a turtleneck sweater. Uh, She was triaged by the triage nurse for her left shoulder pain. Uh, She was actually screened for domestic violence and did not disclose any abuse. Uh, She was triaged as a level four and placed in a non-urgent section of the ED. She waited for several hours as the ER was quite busy that day and her triage level was low. But when her turn finally arrived, she did uh, get assessed, was sent for an x-ray of her left shoulder and humerus and returned and then was diagnosed with a humeral shaft fracture. The ER doc that was on that day was quite astute and noticed that um, in addition to the obvious fracture that she had and the associated bruising, there was also quite a lot of other significant bruising of different ages and did in fact ask if there was a possibility of intimate partner violence. She returned and was diagnosed with a humeral shaft fracture. Uh, The ER doc that was on was astute and did manage to noticed that there were other bruises as well that were of different ages and and that prompted the question of whether there was the possibility of intimate partner violence and it was at this stage that she disclosed that she was in fact involved in an abusive relationship. When the patient discloses that, uh, what should the emergency doctor be doing at that point, uh, at least in our region? So uh, the emergency department serves as a gateway for domestic violence care for hundreds of patients across Canada. And sometimes it's your one and only opportunity to actually pick it up and actually intervene. So in this case, uh, the screening that was done at triage didn't seem to elicit the information that was required and it was elicited later in the visit. Once that happens, it's important that the emergency doc undergo uh, what we call medical clearance of the patient prior to them being dispositioned at a domestic violence unit either in their hospital or in their region. And medical clearance is important because um, there are physical conditions, mental conditions, medical conditions, and questions pertinent to the safety of any children that reside in the home that need to be addressed at this stage. I think one of the issues I think you mentioned is is a lot of this goes unreported and patients are often going to be quite hesitant uh, to be forthcoming about the abuse issues. If you come across a patient that doesn't seem to really want to tell you what's going on, but you, your spidey sensors are up, what strategies do you have or what do you suggest? I think oftentimes uh, taking the time to sit down in the room and take the time to have the patient one-on-one if there's other people in the room with them to sort of find ways to have a private conversation and then phrasing questions in a non-threatening manner, uh, talking about things like, I, a lot of people fight at home. How do you fight at home with your partner? Questions that allow them to feel comfortable to actually come forward and answer the questions.
And if, uh, especially for our junior learners that haven't had to, uh, to deal with this, if the suspected abusive partner is actually there with the patient, what, what is your way in dealing with that? So if the patient has come in with the partner and has not been brought in by police, then generally, typically, we ask for a partner to just step out of the room uh, for an examination purpose. Uh, we take that opportunity to, to have a conversation with the patient uh, as well as do a physical exam. A lot of times, though, I find that these patients will actually come in by themselves and they've kind of found an opportunity or a window of time to attend the emergency department and this is, this is their chance to sort of talk about what's happening at home. Okay. And uh, in terms of specific injuries, um, what, uh, what should uh, physicians be looking for? How should they be documenting? Okay, so when it comes to physical injuries, basically we're doing a head-to-toe assessment, and you're looking for things like contusions, lacerations, bite marks, fractures, sprains, uh, anything from head injuries, neck injuries, chest injuries, abdominal and breast uh, injuries. All of these things need to be assessed, documented, and treated as per usual in the emergency department. And I just want to make an extra note on strangulation. Strangulation is usually done by some of the most dangerous domestic violence offenders that are out there. And these patients that are victims of strangulation are more likely to become homicide victims as well. And in terms of non-physical uh, considerations, other acute medical issues, intoxication, psychiatric issues, what, what should a, a physician be aware of? With regards to other things, uh, there are other medical conditions that are possible for patients to present with. There's a wide variety of acute intoxication or ingestions that are possible with drugs or, or alcohol, and therefore it's important to assess for the possibility of an overdose and treat appropriately prior to transferring them for uh, domestic violence uh, investigation. And there's also a lot of uh, possible chronic illnesses such as asthma, diabetes, seizures, hypertension that may be exacerbated or poorly controlled in those that present in domestic violence relationships. Pregnancy is also very important uh, to identify as there's an additional risk for both the mother and the fetus during this time period. And uh, specifically regarding psychiatric conditions such as uh, suicidal ideation or depression, things that may uh, be pre-existing or, or uh, exacerbated by the, the violence, what should, should you be looking for and how should you be dealing with So as part of the medical clearance, uh, once you've completed the physical and the medical side, the psychiatric side is equally important uh, as there are many psychiatric diagnoses that can result from being in a domestic violence situation. That includes depression and suicidal ideation, possible suicide attempts, post-traumatic stress disorder, as well as substance abuse. So it's important to identify and then treat and refer those that are in urgent need of mental health care prior to sending them to the domestic violence unit as well. Uh, yeah, and you mentioned a special consideration with pregnancy and, and children at the home. And, and so if there are children in the home uh, where the abuse is happening, what, what are your obligations? So with regards to children in the home, uh, it's important to recognize that women are not often the only victims at home. And so questions regarding children at home, the ages of children, and whether they're involved with the abuse or just witnesses to the abuse are very important. And it's also important to note that while there are no mandatory reporting requirements for domestic violence, there certainly are mandatory reporting requirements regarding children. 
And the Child and Family Services Act is set out to promote the best interests, protection, and well-being of children. And under this act, if physicians have reasonable grounds to suspect a child is or may be in the need of protection, uh, they must immediately report the suspicion and information upon which it is based directly to the Children's Aid Society. Now, having said that, it's important to recognize that initiating this communication poses a huge risk to the patient, as there may be escalated violence against that patient once they return home. So it's very important to work in conjunction with the DV unit to ensure that there's a coordinated effort that's put forth. That includes uh, putting a safety plan in place for the patient and the child alongside with the children's aid reporting. Uh, and the safety planning is typically something that is done by the domestic violence uh, unit. Okay, and so uh, the domestic violence unit, unit is not something I was actually familiar with before we, uh, we started talking about. And uh, so, do you mind uh, just uh, explaining what that is and, and how it's used? Yeah, absolutely. So I, it's likely different in different uh, hospitals and different settings, but it, in Halton, Nina's Place, which is the domestic violence unit, is located inside uh, Joseph Brandt Hospital. It is not part of the emergency department. Uh, it is in an unmarked room uh, that is surrounded with cameras. Inside, there's a couple of examining rooms. There's a family room, uh, a counseling room, and there's also a police room where police can record in both audio and video recordings of client statements if needed. And so in the emergency department, we're often lucky that we have uh, access to, to specialty uh, nurses and, and yourself in terms of assessing these patients further. So once we call uh, for your assistance in these cases, what happens from there? So from there, uh, whether you're located in the hospital or coming from an outside hospital, once patients have been medically cleared from physical injuries, medical conditions, mental health conditions, and the child protection issues have been addressed, the patient can actually be physically transferred to the domestic violence unit. Sometimes that's as simple as going down the, the hall from the eMERGE to the unit or uh, inter-hospital transfer. Okay. So once these patients are discharged from the, the emergency department or the domestic violence unit, um, what kind of resources are, are important, uh, globally speaking, to try and put into place for these patients? Once uh, patients are discharged, there's a lot of planning that goes into the discharge. Uh, there's planning advice that includes uh, head injury instructions, strangulation instructions, community resources, 24-hour support lines, police, police and legal service resources, options for acute counselling uh, services, and safety planning. The safety planning is one of the most important parts of the discharge planning because uh, it encompasses a plan for the patient, the patient's children if there are any, and pets if there are any, and discussing how and when to contact the police. A list of names is created both formally and uh, formally to for support networks for the for the patient. That would include family, friends, police, shelters. And if the patient does feel suicidal, a plan is implemented for that as well. And then a list of items that may be required if an emergency exit is required. And you mentioned that uh, the, the assessment done by the, uh, the specialty nurses that often see these patients uh, before discharge is quite extensive. And in terms of documentation pointers for the physicians that are seeing the patients initially, um, what would you suggest how they do? So with respect to emergency physician documentation, the documentation would follow their usual guidelines and rules for medical charting. Things need to be detailed, specific anatomic locations for injuries, uh, if you can write approximate sizes. Those are all helpful facts. As far as forensic write-ups go, that is not needed in the actual emergency medicine documentation as that is all done in in the domestic violence unit where a complete forensic write-up 
and description of injuries as well as photography can be carried out should the patient consent to that. And uh, in, in these cases, if, if the patient does want to disclose and, uh, and follow up with the police, uh, whose responsibility is that to put that in motion? I'll just talk a little bit about what happens as soon as the patient enters the uh, DV unit. So the first thing that happens is they're notified that everything that they do there is voluntary, that consent is required to obtain history, do physical examination, to do any kind of forensic documentation or testing. And so they have full control of whatever happens there. They can stop at any minute that they want. And usually written informed consent is obtained. There's a lot of uh, detailed history that's taken with respect to the actual assault historical assaults, whether there is weapons used, whether there is strangulation, all kinds of things are sort of elucidated at that time. Following this, a danger assessment is actually done to determine the risk for severe assault in the future or actually a lethal assault. And so certain risk factors do actually increase the frequency or severity of violence, and that is use of a weapon, violence in pregnancy, and a history of sort of increased frequency of assault. They're all risk factors. They also mentioned strangulation. And strangulation is a huge risk factor as well. Yeah. So once once the history is complete, the following care options are provided for the patient. This includes injury documentation on a pictorial body map, uh, injury photography using forensic photography, uh, the opportunity to decide if they want police involvement. But as it's not mandatory to report domestic violence to the police, it's a fully optional decision. Uh, patients are also given the opportunity to decide whether they actually want forensic evidence collection. That's not mandatory either. All of these options are options and are not obtained without written informed consent from the patient. One other thing that we had spoken about quickly before um, is uh, actual court considerations in, in terms of how often physicians are actually called to courts to discuss these cases. And... Yeah, so from my experience, and I've been doing this for seven years now, typically the person that gets called to court is actually the nurse that does the domestic violence assessment in the domestic violence unit. And that's primarily because they spend three to four to five hours with the patient getting such a detailed history and physical. They're the ones that do the photography. They're the ones that do the swabs. That They are the ones that get called. I have not have yet to see a, an emergency physician get called to court for this. And even the nurses that get called in the last seven years, I think we've had maybe two of them get called to court in that time period. So it's not very frequent. And, and that's because most of these patients don't actually end up pressing charges. Thank you to both Dr. Sangeeta Sharma and Dr. Brendan Trotter for this excellent podcast and topic review. Domestic violence is unfortunately something that we as emergency medicine providers will be exposed to and something that we should all be comfortable providing care for. I'm going to do a quick review for the listeners just to help with consolidating the information. First, Dr. Sharma emphasized recognition and the importance of good but respectful history taking of our patients who are victims of domestic violence making sure to do a full history and physical exam to medically clear the patients so that they can get proper care and follow-up for their current situation. Domestic violence can present in many ways, such as physical, emotional, social, and financial abuse. So make sure to keep an open mind and be mindful of the many forms of abuse. Get your social worker and know your local resources to help provide good care. Dr. Sharma mentioned the Domestic Violence Unit and how the nurses there are specially trained to aid these patients. Lastly, 
make sure to screen for children and to get the Children's Aid Society involved if necessary. And that's a wrap for the first one. Keep tuning in every month for the latest topics featuring some of our amazing faculty and residents from McMaster University. Hope this was helpful. Kevin Dong, out. Welcome to Residence Corner, where you will learn about some of the awesome work that our McMaster Emerge residents have been up to. Hello everyone, I'm your host, Joanna, and today we have a great resident bite for you I can't wait to share. Have you ever been at work after many days in a row, finding yourself tired, maybe less empathetic, maybe less compassionate, and maybe overall not invested and happy with your work? Well, we know now that these are some of the many symptoms of physician burnout, and the last little while, there has been increasing exposure and media attention to this very important topic within healthcare. I have the pleasure of having here with me one of my dear colleague residents who has done some inspiring work in this area, Dr. Leila Nasser. Leila, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. As Joe said, uh, my name is Leila. I'm a PGY2 emergency medicine resident at McMaster. Thank you for being here. We're the lucky ones here. Now, Leila, why did you choose to work in the field of resident wellness? What was it that inspired you initially and got you, you know, ready for this type of work. So as you know, physician wellness has garnered quite a bit of media attention over the last couple of years. And it's usually from a negative perspective where it identifies huge gaps in supporting young doctors. We know from a national survey that RDoc put out recently that at least eight out of 10 residents experience work-related fatigue. And there are other surveys that have shown rates of up to 50% for burnout, which is a rate that seems to be steadily climbing. Like any massive system issue, we need a system-oriented solution, which is what prompted me to start developing a wellness curriculum for our resident group. And as someone who has participated in this curriculum and here at our residency um, program at McMaster, I'm excited to say that I look forward to the sessions that are part of the wellness curriculum every time and reaping their benefits when needed. Now, Leila, how did you actually first get involved in this type of work? I understand the importance of it, but how did you specifically actually first get involved in this type of work? So I saw that our residency program didn't have a formal wellness plan. So I went to our program director who was amazingly supportive and encouraged me to take my ideas for a wellness curriculum and turn them into a proposal for the program to start affecting system change. With this, we got a budget approved, yay, <laughs> and now have our preliminary wellness curriculum in action for the first time this year. That's honestly very exciting to hear. And it sounds like you're well supported when you need it to be initially. Just like many things out there, however, being the you know, cynical that I am, sometimes there's resistance to change. Now tell me in your opinion, why do you think this is so important for current and future doctors to not only know about this, but also to participate in a wellness curriculum like such as the one that you developed? So we've all heard the saying that you can't serve from an empty vessel. In order to be the best doctors, we need to be in our strongest mindset. And that means taking care of ourselves first. The problem, is that there is a stigma among many residency programs against wellness, portraying it as weakness or laziness. And many of the rules that are out there to protect us are being broken. The only way we can change this is if we start to change the culture of residency. For example, taking away the negative attitude associated with sick time or staying late post-call. It's not just about encouraging the occasional yoga session or putting out healthy recipes, both of which can be extremely helpful in directing individual wellness, but it's about promoting collective wellness 
and challenging the issues that are ingrained in our system, which are actually causing the burnout. So what you're telling me is that I can't just participate in a one-off wellness session and expect to see the benefits immediately. Mm-hmm. Sounds like I'll have to do a lot more work, not just personally, but I think also as a system as a whole, we're going to continuously have to invest ourselves in this type of work. Now, as a junior trainee in the field, say myself or current medical students or residents, how would one go about getting involved in this type of work that's so important for the future health of our own healthcare providers? Having a formal committee gives you speaking power to advocate for your peers. So join the committees when the opportunity arises. And if there is no committee, start one. This will provide you with a platform to start slowly making changes. There's currently a lot of great work that's also being done by RDOC and CAPE. So there's no need to start from scratch. Connect with a mentor and share ideas because the only way we can do this is together. That sounds very inspiring, Leila, sincerely. If there was one take-home message that you want our listeners to leave with when it comes to their wellness, what would that be? System change takes a while, but we can all start to affect change in our own lives. There is no one-size-fits-all solution, so you need to find what works for you and implement that, whether it's eating dinner with your family once a week, or having a good book to read at night, or advocating for yourself to see your therapist or your family doctor. As long as you're going in the right direction, it's a start. Well, thank you so much, Leila, for being here today. Such a pleasure to have you here talk about a very important topic on physician wellness. And I look forward, honestly, to seeing where you take this new wellness curriculum here at McMaster University. And thank you to our listeners. This is Residence Corner Bite, and see you all next time. Thank you for tuning in. Some heavier stuff and some lighter stuff, but definitely interesting. You know, we have a lot of really interesting stuff coming up in the next little while, too. Kevin, do you want to tell people what's coming up? Well, there's a Bragg and Steel event that is coming up on February 15, 2019. It's a venue for staff physicians from any of our teaching sites to share projects that they're working on. Oh, so a live community event? That's great. I'm definitely going to try to make it if I can. Me too. Uh, hope you can all make it too. If you didn't get the email about the event, just let us know at the podcast email. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region. Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well. Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Mac Emerge out!